It's the beginning of the holiday season on Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. That means we'll be having a rotating cast of characters on our podcast for the next couple of weeks. I'm Chris Quinn, and today I'm here with Lisa Garvin and Laura Johnston, and we have a newsy weekend to talk about. Lisa, you're first. Where does Cuyahoga County rank in Ohio in terms of how long people who get arrested are stuck in jail and how long are they staying on average? And I guess I should preface it by saying, of course, the data is not reliable. Well, and there's a lot of different data and there are several different formulas that people use to calculate the average stay of, you know, jail people. So this analysis was done by Caitlin Durbin with Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. And she found that the county jail, the sheriff's office, the courts, and the Department of Justice all use different formulas. So Caitlin settled on the Bureau of Justice Statistics and they use the their they calculate their average length of stay by um, the average daily population divided by the number of annual bookings at the jail times 365 days a year. So using that formula, Cuyahoga County in uh, 2018, the average stay was 34 days. That was the highest that we've seen since then. Um, in 2019, there was a low of 23 days per, you know, average stay. But the last three years from 2020 to present, it's been 29. Now, if you look at Franklin County in 2018, they had a 23 day stay on average. Their high was 34 in 2020. But uh, right now they're at 30. And then if you look at Hamilton County, Cincinnati in 2018, they were at 21 days average stay, but they had a high of 25 in 2020 and 21. So we, we kind of fall in the middle, but uh, Cuyahoga County stays in the jail are about two to 13 days longer than Hamilton County, but one to 11 days fewer days than Franklin County. So jail consultant Eric Ratz, he's with DLZ Architecture. He's working on the new county jail plans. He noted that the average daily population was 1,600 you know, prisoners and the average stay was 150 to 200 days. Well, that was horrifying to common pleas administrative judge Brendan Sheehan. He and prosecutor Mike O'Malley said, hold the phone. We want you to correct that report. And they said that the numbers, you know, were based on how long people already jailed had been there and was not a true reflection of, you know, everyone who touches the criminal justice system. So Rat said he got the data from the county jail, but he agrees it's not a fair comparison to other counties that use different formulas. I almost feel like we need an entirely new measurement because what matters here is the person who's arrested that doesn't need to stay. How long is it taking to get them out, whether it's through bond or through diversion or whatever? That's that's the whole purpose of bail reform. It's to it's to make sure the people that aren't needed to stay in the jail get out. And I I would love to see that subset. Some people are in the jail, they're sentenced to the jail. Some people are dangerous and they shouldn't be released. But what about that large set of people that get arrested who we don't need to be there beyond processing? Right. Uh, It sounds like none of these systems really measure the most important 
quality. And it looks like, you know, Caitlin had trouble trying to, you know, it was like apples to oranges trying to compare these different formulas. So yes, I agree. They all need to settle on a formula that everybody can use as a standard here. You know, Judge Sheehan says, you know, that stays do get extended. There are a lot of things that happen that can extend a jail stay for people awaiting trial. Their attorney changes, the judge changes, they're waiting for, you know, testing on mental health and competency. There are delays there and also transportation issues. But he says he has weekly meetings with jail officials and others to discuss these issues. But he's right. We we should be looking at it. I love the way Caitlin casts this story, going through each kind of measurement, how you couldn't actually get the data anyway, and how confusing it was. It really was a labyrinth of confusing data, trying to get it the central important fact here for the future of the jail. How quickly can we get people out who don't need to be there? It's today in Ohio. The Cleveland Clinic campus has burst its seams over the past two decades with one building after another being thrown up and throwing up is what some people think of the architecture there. What does our esteemed architecture critic Steve Litt have to say about the overall quality and design of the campus and why does he think it's important to talk about it now? Laura. Basically, it's a fortress. Steve Litt wrote this very involved column about the clinic campus, which is a remnant of 1960s urban design, when developers felt the best way to save cities from sprawl and white flight was to build these buildings and garages designed to attract commuters who would never have to set foot on the scary sidewalk. So it's almost impossible to walk around at ground level on this campus if you've tried. Even that beautiful Ali off of Chester with the reflecting pool of rocks, I think people who work there call it the cookie sheet. It has no paths or benches. It's not meant to be walked on. It's meant to be enjoyed from your car, like the lake from the shoreway. It's very Robert Moses, if you ever read The Power Broker, it's, it's not for the people. So this is the opposite what a lot of eds and meds institutions are trying to do. They're trying to welcome people, integrate with the community. And for example, just look at Metro Health with its hospital and a park concept. But then there's the clinic, which doesn't seem to want to change. But there is a possibility here. There's a whole lot of stuff, a wave of construction coming soon, four more new buildings and a fifth big garage. And what Steve is calling for is a little more pushback from the city and a lot more involvement of the community in the clinic so that we can really be part of the community here. Let me ask a question though. I I agree that the place is just big and ugly. It's not, there's nothing attractive about it. It's just a bunch of square buildings. But if the entire design of that complex was patient focused to get people in and out, to get people treated, to get people saved, and that works, if that's what went into it, is that the more important priority? I know, for instance, if people need radiation, somebody's had breast cancer, they have to go in. They have a great system for valet parking, getting them in, getting them out as fast as possible. It's very patient focused. Well, to design that, it might need to be ugly to get them in and out of there. And I know you can do two things well, and the clinic really didn't talk to us much. But if this whole hospital design is to move people in and out efficiently, shouldn't that be the priority? Well, I think it's been the priority and I, I'm not, I've, I've not used the clinic on a regular basis. So I don't know how easy it is to get in and out. I just know when I've gone there as a reporter, I'm super confused about which building and I'm, I'm in because it's, it's like, if I am F, am I in G, where's the walkway to go from one to the other? I would argue that being able to 
tell a building from the front of it and walk in from the mm-hmm. front would actually help people orient themselves in this very confusing campus where all the buildings are white and glass and kind of look the same. And the idea is maybe right, some wait, of it wait, could wait, be- Wait, wait, though. I mean, I don't think anybody walks into the front of any building there because they park- <laughs> No, they park in their garages and they walk through the little gerbil tunnels but, to get right, there. But exactly. The, but it, but once you're in the parking garage, the wayfinding generally gets you where you need to be. I mean, you park in the garage that they tell you is associated with your building, and then they have pretty good signage to get you there. Look, when I go to a medical facility, you know, I want to get treated. I want to. I want it to be as efficient as possible. I hate having to to go through rigmarole and if they're designed i don't i don't know what the answer to this is maybe it's a nightmare of of a labyrinth because i'm not i'm a uh guy but if that's what it was based on then that should be the priority. Well, I worked in the Texas Medical Center in Houston for for 17 years, and they've managed to balance that. I mean, tens of thousands of people descend upon the medical center every day, but you have to remember that some of them are employees and some of them are visitors who may be there visiting somebody and they really need some green space. They need a bench to sit on, you know, so it's not just about the patients. It's about the thousands of employees who, who work there as well. I would think there is a balance, right? Like that beautiful Ali I talked about. Why aren't there walking paths mm-hmm. on that? That doesn't make any sense to me. Wellness is an important part of health. And just like, so Meyer's building a grocery store there. So that is one step that Steve notes that the clinic has taken. But they're demolishing historic buildings and, and a in a dominantly black neighborhood, I feel like they could be better stewards and better neighbors. And I, I think they are making some efforts. The clinic did talk to Steve somewhat and said, here's what we're doing. But I think there needs to be a lot more community conversation. We talked about this on the podcast a while ago, but when they talked about their new, I think it was the Eye Institute, there's like a a roof garden that people on the street can look mm-hmm. at, but mm-hmm. can't access, right? I think they need to think about how that appears to people. And as for how easy it is to maneuver in the clinic parking lot, the only times I've had to go there, I've been like, please, somebody give me a map. Like, I don't understand what parking lot G is. I don't know which street I'm supposed to be on. And obviously, there's a lot of anxiety with medical appointments. And I wonder if other people find it as confusing as I am. I do think... Hey, look, let's face it. The The clinic has been a walled fortress in in a poverty stricken neighborhood. There have been complaints since Fannie Lewis, the late Fannie Lewis was the councilwoman that it doesn't do enough. But I think the people in the surrounding neighborhoods would get a lot more if the clinic did more outreach to serve them than to make a pretty campus. If they really work to improve the health of those surrounding neighborhoods, they claim, oh, we do all sorts of Medicaid, but they don't. They don't really focus on those neighborhoods. If they did, that would make a bigger difference than anything. It's a great piece by Steve Litt. Very thoughtful. We got a lot of comments about it over the weekend. I mean, if you haven't read measure- it, you check it out on cleveland.com. We got to move on, Laura. Okay. It's today in Ohio. Cuyahoga County will hit an unfortunate mark in 2022, something it has not done in 40 years. Lisa, what is it and what's going on here? The Cuyahoga County homicide rate is expected to top 200 for the third year in a row, three consecutive years. Uh, You know, so this hasn't happened in about 40 years. Uh, In in the last couple of years, we've 
crossed the 250 mark, both in 2021 and 2020. The medical examiner's office is currently working on 213 murder investigations through mid-December. They're thinking it's probably going to hit 235 by the end of the year. If you break down those homicides by city, 155 of them were in Cleveland. Next was Euclid with 13. That was double the amount that Euclid had last year. East Cleveland had 12. And then there were violent deaths in 19 cities and villages as well. Um, Parma actually used community policing programs. They had six homicides last year. They've only had two so far this year. And they really credit that to more aggressive community policing. What's amazing about this is that there's not a driving force. In the 90s, when homicides went up, there was a lot of the battles for the street corners for crack dealing. Mm -hmm. And the city population now is lower than it's been in a long time. I wonder per capita if we're hitting its all-time record. The the all-time record is 300 and some Mm -hmm. that was in the 1970s. I'll bet that if you did that per capita, we're past that which is frightening. Yeah, it is. And, you know, of course, we're not alone. You know, we we have to stress that, but still, it's very concerning. Uh, Case Western Reserve University professor Daniel Daniel Flannery says that violent firearms deaths are increasing. He thinks it's in part due to easily accessible guns. He says, you know, and the fact that you can convert things to semi-automatic and use bump stocks. And he says because of the concealed carry law that we passed in June, that doesn't require a license or any training to carry a concealed weapon will probably make things worse. Well, you also have 13 and 14 year olds who are in the throes of adolescence and their brains are not really wired right yet walking around with guns. So if they get offended by somebody, they pull out the gun and shoot them. And that's, that's frightening. And it's about the prevalence of guns, really distressing statistic for 2022. It's today in Ohio. Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost keeps losing in his battle to all but halt abortions in Ohio. What's his latest setback, Laura, and what does it mean for the near future? He couldn't get the Ohio First District Court of Appeals to hear his appeal of the case that in Hamilton County where Judge Christian Jenkins, who is a Democrat, ordered a preliminary injunction, which is a temporary block on the heartbeat abortion law. So that prevents the state from enforcing it. So he was hoping that he could get a court to reverse this order. It's kept abortions legal until 22 weeks since early October, and it's going to stay that way, it seems, for the near term while Jenkins works out this this court case. I, I didn't think that this would happen. I thought that the courts would just say it's the law and we can debate it, but for now it's the law. But the judges must see some possible merit in this case that because that's generally when they issue the stays. Dave Yost will go to the Supreme Court. I'm sure he'll wait. until after January 1st so that he gets all the Republican conservatives and then they may give him what he wants, but we'll see. It's today in Ohio. We're not the only ones questioning why Ohio energy regulators are putting the screws to NOPEC, the agency that for years has helped Northeast Ohioans save money on natural gas and electricity 
Lisa, who else is speaking up? The Ohio Consumer Council, actually, and they had a filing against the Public Utilities Commission of Ohio in this NOPEC show cause case. They said that uh, PUCO is unreasonably prolonging the investigation and it will affect customer utility bills. They say that, you know, this whole investigation is excessive and questionable. And the council is calling for renewing NOPEC's business certificate and not further extending deadlines for show cause. So let's go back to the history. So back in the summer, NOPEC, you know, which buys bulk electricity for municipalities, they dropped over a half million customers customers temporarily because their rates rose after the Ukraine invasion and they became higher than the standard service offer. So they said, we're going to temporarily dump our customers until the prices go down and then bring them back. Well, Dynegy and other, you know, suppliers didn't like that. So there was a deadline for today for filings. It's now been pushed back to January 20th. The original deadline on this was October 20th. So um, they're worried, you know, the council is worried because First Energy is having an electricity auction on the 10th of January. The suppliers will not know the status of NOPEC then because when they're bidding because the deadline is now January 20th. So they're worried that this will cause higher auction prices and a higher cost for electricity come June. Yeah, This is yet another example where PUCO does not represent the people of Ohio. It just represents the utilities. This is, this is a no brainer. Nope. NOPEC did the right thing. They realized because of market forces, which we explained in a very detailed story a couple weeks back, that it would save customers money to take them off of their roles. So they did that. That's what they're there for. They're supposed to save money. Th- this is a game. The, the Utilities Commission of Ohio should be disbanded because it's a disaster. All they do is work for the utilities with no thought to the regular people of Ohio who have to deal with these bills. And they said they, they had a very you know short statement about this, PUCO did, and they said that they had good cause to extend the deadline, but they couldn't comment further because of ongoing litigation. But Ohio Consumer Council wasn't alone. They got 100 letters of support from 79 communities that are served by NOPEC. I wouldn't be surprised if there wasn't corruption involved here because this if NOPEC saves money for people, it means it's coming out of somebody's pocket. And those people have a history of doing bad things to preserve their profits. Shame on the PUCO and good for the Consumer Council. It's today in Ohio. Cuyahoga County Council is doing more than talking about developing our lakefront. It's putting some cash into the idea. Laura, how much is the latest spending and what will it pay for? I learned something about this that I didn't know before. Yeah, $2.1 million is going into the lakefront. So $650,000 of that will be paid using the county's American Rescue Plan Act dollars. And that comes from Armin Budish's $8 million fund for lakefront projects. So, and then one project would be, well, sorry, the, the KS associates would identify parts of the lakefront that have been filled in with junk, sometimes oil-based products or asphalt or just thrown into the lake. I was told in Euclid, I believe, that when they like rerouted 90 or something like that, they literally just threw parts of the highway into it. And they had to clean that up when they did the um, lakefront path there. So there's a $1.4 million for GHD services. They're conducting professional engineering services on about 0.7 miles of lakefront access. This is part of the Gold Coast Lakefront Project, and they're supposed to figure out basically if they could put a lakefront path there by getting access from private homeowners in exchange for erosion control. And that's what they did in Mm -hmm. Euclid, which was so groundbreaking. 
I, I just didn't realize that all sorts of petroleum type products were dumped into the lake. What were they thinking? It's just, I mean, how much is there? Has there ever been a census done of all of the stuff that's there that is bad for the environment? That's a very good question. And I think they just didn't think about the long-term implications for a long time because yeah, that would have affected our water supply and everything like that. But they just saw it as a dumping ground. And um, I wrote a piece about this once, but all the bricks that wash up Mm -hmm. on Lake Erie, we don't really know why there's so many bricks or why there's more in some places than others. There's a ton at Columbia Road Beach. And the idea is maybe they, when they paved roads and they took up the the bricks, they just threw them in the lake because it was like, well, it's right here. But bricks don't damage the environment. (laughs) We've seen a lot of old concrete bridges when they're dumped. They they put them in the ocean to create reefs or something. And I get that. It's just asphalt is a petroleum product. And you would think that somebody would have said, you know, it's probably not really good for the for the fish to be putting oil based products in the water. And what else? You know, what else was dumped there? It's just a it's a shocker. Good that they're putting the money toward it, but I didn't realize that was a problem we had to deal with if we want to enjoy our lake. It's today in Ohio. We've been thinking for three years that empty shelves and stores are the result of supply line problems, but there's another big factor which has the unusual title of shrink. What is shrink, Lisa, and what's behind it? Shrink is when a store has fewer items in stock than they're supposed to have. And the reason for that is organized retail crime. So there was $94.5 billion lost to shrink in 2021. That's almost a $4 billion increase from 2020. This is according to the National Retail Federation. So external theft, shoplifters, are accountable for about $35 billion of that total, 37%. Internal theft by uh, employees is 28.5%. And they also, you know, lose things to process and control issues and damaged goods. That's about 25%. And then about 7% from unknown sources. But organized retail crime has increased 26.5% as of last year. And let me tell you, like I said, I read the Sun Messenger blotter every Thursday, and there's always several stories of people just filling a shopping cart at Dick's Sporting goods or Walmart and just wheeling it out of the store. Sometimes they're caught and sometimes they're not. But Dwayne Mabry, he's a, a police officer in Columbus and he's on the board of the Ohio Regional Organized Crime Coalition, which is loss prevention people in retail and law enforcement working together. He said both sides of this equation are short staffed. That's why they have to work together. And he says these are large interstate operations. These people will actually like drive up the highway and hit, hit big box and retail stores as they go up the highway. Way. And then they often, you know, uh, you know, have a house where they sort these goods for sale online. And Mabry says, you know, Marketplace and other, Craigslist are just such easy ways to get rid of stolen merchandise. You know, Costco has an answer for that. They have two people that stand by the door and you don't get to walk out the door with your card until they look at your receipt and cross it off. I wonder if Costco sees a whole lot less, significantly less shrinkage than other stores because of that. That, that would be interesting. I know, yeah, and I, I don't frequent Costco because I don't have a membership, but, you know, Home Depot is another one. I mean, that's where people just walk in and just wheel out a bunch of stuff. But, yeah, you're right. I don't see people in these stores. Well, Home Depot does check receipts, but not always. 
I, it's just surprising to me that you can load up your cart with stuff and walk out the door. I was in a Home Depot recently and they had a lot of their, their hand power tools caged up. Mm. And to get something, I was buying a gift. Uh, I had to find somebody to unlock it. They had to walk me to the cash register to pay. Like If I had other things to do, they wouldn't be giving it to me yet. I was going to have to come back to get it. Um, which is a very awkward way of going about buying something. You're going to, if you have to do that regularly, I think you're going to go on Amazon. Maybe the Costco answer, it's extra personnel, but maybe that's the answer is to have somebody at the door making sure you aren't walking out with stuff. Well, and Ohio lawmakers do have a couple of bills that, that they can be considering coming up. There's one, House Bill 272, that requires online retailers to verify all sellers, which would be a big help. And also Senate Bill 320, where prosecutors can aggregate the total dollar amount of stolen products to get you know a higher higher punishment. Interesting. It's today in Ohio. Is the anti-vax movement that flourished during the pandemic part of the reason for the measles outbreak in greater Columbus? And is there a chance we will see this awful illness in the Cleveland area? Laura, you really worry about the holiday visits coming up that we might all, we might end the holidays with measles. Yeah, if enough kids have not been vaccinated, this is a real problem. In Columbus, the outbreak started in November. There's been 77 cases as of last week, limited entirely to unvaccinated or partially vaccinated children. 72 of the cases are kids under five, including kids who are not yet a year old. There were 20 of those and you have to be a year old to be vaccinated. So they are not protected. There have been no deaths reported, thank goodness, but more than a quarter of these patients have required hospitalization. And a lot of this does come down to anti-vaxxing. So there's a combination of both complacency about the disease that most people thought had been eradicated and they didn't need to worry about. And then there's been this heated debate around COVID-19 vaccinations. There's a ton of confusion and misinformation about the safety and effectiveness and necessity of vaccines for all sorts of childhood illnesses. But a single exposure could be devastating. I mean, I didn't realize how contagious measles is. 90% of people who are exposed will end up getting sick. And it's really unpleasant. I, it just makes mm-hmm. no sense if you have a kid that you would not get this vaccination. We had so gotten ahead of measles. When I was a kid, I don't think I knew anybody that had measles. And now, because of this anti-vax nonsense, kids are getting measles. It's just ridiculous. Oh, yeah, well. I, 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 it's not something... <laughs> yeah, I hope that people realize how important this is and... um and, and take precautions because at least two, 25% of the area's two-year-olds in Columbus were not vaccinated. I mean, that's a huge percentage. Yeah. And part of that might be the inconvenience of going to the doctor during the pandemic. A lot of, mm-hmm. of basic medicine was put on hold and they've just been clearing the decks, but this is a warning sign. It's today in Ohio. We're trying to keep it short for the next two weeks to give you some time back. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Lisa. Thank you for listening. We'll be back Tuesday.